in the wake of last Shabbat's uh, darkness. The Jewish community of Toronto gathered in Mel Lastman Square on Monday evening to find strength with each other. Behind the crowd of nearly 15,000 people gathered, you could easily hear the chants of Hamas supporters coming from Young Street, who were being kept at a distance only by the presence of the police. Far from being chastened for supporting a movement who butcher, rape, defile, and abuse children, women, and men, they followed the lesser rule of human life. They blamed us for what happened. But that spectacle was not the thing that actually caught my attention that evening. But before I share it with you, a word of caution, which I have to carefully spell out. The many politicians who came to the stage to show solidarity and support for the Jewish Toronto are each to be praised. From every point in the spectrum, liberal to conservative, they came to ensure that this community felt supported. And that's a very good thing. But standing there as each new speaker came to the front, I found myself recoiling to a point where I could applaud no longer. Almost as if by script, we heard the same thing. We acknowledge Israel's right to exist. Quickly followed by, we acknowledge Israel's right to defend itself. Now, I understand these phrases are meant to communicate support, and I appreciate that. But if you stop and carefully consider what it says, you can't help but feel hollowed. On one hand, the assumption that any country requires individual validation is prima facie silly. Is there anyone who walks around telling Dutch people that you recognize Holland's right to exist? This despite the fact that there has been for decades a movement to make Antwerp into its own country. Does anybody consider reaffirming to groups of Belgians that they meet their right to exist, despite the large vocal movement for Flemish independence, which would render Belgium no longer Belgium as you know it today? For that matter, let it be said that there are currently more than a hundred separatist movements throughout the world, from Spain to Scotland and everything in between. So Israel is not unique in having a population wanting to take some of its land for itself. To the best of my knowledge, no one stands or has stood in the United Nations pledging to recognize Canada's right to exist, while we all know Quebec's position, there are nine other secessionist movements to this day in Canada alone. So I think it is what it says it is. The question they're answering is about our existence. In the 19th century throughout Western Europe, the story of individual rights and freedom and emancipation erupted everywhere. The Jews became a question because people couldn't agree on how to classify us. There are lots of people who didn't want Jews to be integrated, places like in France and in Germany and in Britain, and they argued to deny Jews their equal rights that were given to other citizens. One of the thought leaders was the German philosopher Fichte, who said the Jews are a nation within a nation. 
that they weren't Germans, but Jews. Not Frenchmen, but Jews. Not Englishmen, but Jews. Panicked and frightened, the Jews responded by saying, no, no, you're wrong. We're not a separate nation. We're a religion. By the way, that's the word, where the word Judaism comes from. From 19th century Germany. It was created to make it sound like Catholicism, Protestantism. But the word never existed before then. So the Jews say that you have it all wrong, that we're a religion like all the other ones in this country, and we deserve to be Germans with all the equal rights and freedoms that all of the Germans have. It didn't resolve the issue then, and it's still being asked. Today there are those who say the Jews aren't a nation, but a religion. In their argument, they say that because Jews live as citizens in countries throughout the world, like Canada, Britain, America, therefore you can suggest that we're a nation. This is the argument of the anti-Zionist movement. It is in the manifesto of Hamas and Hezbollah. Because if Jews are not a, a nation, then they are not entitled to a homeland. But the truth of the matter is, it says two things. One, that Jews are always fighting to have a place in this world. And the other thing is, that the Jews are neither one or the other. The Jews are both. We are a religion and we are a nation. We are a people. The reiterative litany of supporting Israel's right to exist tells us that people still see it as a question. Because if it wasn't, why would you even say it in the first place? Which brings us to our second item, supporting Israel's right to defend itself. The right to self-defense is a priori given to every human being, period. It isn't dependent or reliant on the consent of other human beings because it is inherent to all people. Jewish tradition sees this even clearer with the ancient rabbis telling us that if you know someone is coming to do you harm, you must arise earlier and strike them first. Because in assuming that your life to be as valuable as anyone else's, you are obligated, let us be clear, ethically obligated to employ all means to save your life. When people take essential rights and convert them into questions, it bears warning that it could be taken away at any time. So at some point in the future, we don't know when, the narrative will change from what was done to us to what we are doing and all the support to defense will quickly be followed by but. But moral imperatives do not have buts. In 2013, Barack Obama launched a drone strike in Afghanistan that killed not only the targeted terrorists, but nearly a dozen celebrants who were innocent at a wedding. In 2015, they struck a terrorist network that was set up alongside a hospital that was staffed by Doctors Without Borders. 36 people died in the hospital as a result of that attack. And over the course of eight years in Afghanistan, Barack Obama's government killed 24,665 innocent people as it waged war against Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Nearly 25,000 innocent people. I'm not providing numbers from the Bush government, 
precisely because Barack Obama's presidency was democratic and liberal, and there were no protests to be seen in New York or Los Angeles against him. There were no scathing opinion columns for weeks on end in the New York Times or hour-long panels on CNN or MSNBC. The lesson is that what was permitted to Barack Obama is not permitted to Bibi Netanyahu and Benny Gantz. And what was permitted to the United States is not permitted to Israel. What China can do, Israel cannot do. But you do not have to accept that. And you shouldn't. Israel is defending itself against enemies pressing on all of its borders, including Hamas, which has the genocide of the Jews and a belief in Jewish manipulative power at the heart of its ideology. The original Hamas charter from 1988 claimed that the Jews orchestrated the French and Russian revolutions and both world wars. Those who call themselves anti-Zionists usually say that they're not anti-Semites. But I struggle to see what else to call an ideology that seeks to eradicate only one state in the world, that one which happens to be a Jewish one, while empathetically insisting on the rights of self-determination to every other minority in the world. What took place on last Shabbat was not an aberration, but a manifestation of what people believed say and teach. That is the destruction of Jews, which now asks that we turn our attention to what must be said. Your presence here this morning. Last week at the rally, the mayor of Toronto announced funding to place concrete balustrades in front of all Jewish institutions, and people applauded. It's a caring gesture, and it should be appreciated by us. But I spend a lot of time in churches and mosques, and I've never once been asked to open my coat or ask who I'm coming to see. Their doors are open. I can't remember when we started security at synagogues, but it's been long enough that it seems normal now. And if all safety at some level is an illusion, then this kind of protection ranks as its worst that our answer to hatred and violence is to hire people with guns to walk around our buildings, to place concrete balustrades in areas exposed to roads, bulletproof our glass, and wire cameras around our building. And yesterday I came to a head with Hamas declaring an international day of rage against Jews, Jewish institutions, and Israelis throughout the world. And people were asking me, Should we postpone a funeral that was meant to be held on Friday to Monday? If they should go shopping, if they should bring their children to school, have an unveiling on Sunday. And this morning when you were coming here to get ready, tell me you didn't have a pause. Wondering what if? Did you wonder if you should bring your children here this morning? As we heard and read this morning in the Torah, the Garden of Eden that was created for humanity was short-lived. Adam and Eve spent more than a day in it before it was torn away and they were thrown out. The Torah then goes deeper and tells us that their expulsion from Eden was permanent because the angels bearing fiery swords were left for eternity at its entrance to prevent any of us from ever returning. 
Rashi, the greatest of all biblical commentators who lived a thousand years ago in Christian France, tells us, I read this as simply as it is written. Angels, fiery swords, in other words, telling us there is no going back to the garden. What was true for Adam and Eve is true for you and me. The world we live in is no Eden. It is dangerous and uncertain, cruel and unrelenting as it is magnificent and beautiful. The key is knowing you cannot possibly have one without the other. To live is to accept danger, to have an optimistic faith in the triumph of good and have the strength to live without allowing fear to deter us. In Israel, they are going back to school. And we should too. Because they know the, West le the, the lesson well. You cannot give in. Resilience is the determination to live no matter the circumstance. And the days ahead will be difficult. Already the murdered men, women, and children are moving to the space of old news. And the talking heads warning the world of Israeli aggression have begun to fill our airwaves. But because nothing should be understood in the vacuum, I remember reading in Elie Wiesel's memoirs the story of a Jewish family who were discovered by a young Polish boy hiding in a forest. He went to find a policeman who came and ordered the family to come out, which they did obediently. He then told them to line up, one alongside the other, and he began to shoot them dead. But then he ran out of bullets. He told them to stay there until he could get more. A short while later, he returns, and the family is standing there, and he finishes murdering them. Wiesel asks the question most people would. Why didn't they run? But in some way, you know the answer. They had nowhere to run. They knew if it wasn't there, it would have been eventually somewhere else. They had nowhere to go. Which is the question asked at the end of Schindler's List. Schindler's Jews in the final frames are sitting outside the factory on a hill when a Russian soldier on a horseback approaches them. Have you been to Poland, they ask him. He says, yes, I just came from Poland, in fact. And they ask him, are there any Jews left? And he's silent. So then they ask him, where should we go? Don't go east, that's for sure, he said. They hate you there. And I wouldn't go west either, actually, if I was you. The next scene, the only one in the movie that is shot in full color, has Schindler's Jews walking on a hill in Jerusalem. Jews often say, Shana Bab Yushalayim. But we should change that. It should be called Shana Yushalayim every year in Jerusalem. Because in our hearts, we must never not know the answer where should we go? With Israel, you can go east and you can go west. With Israel, there is hope. When we say, Am Yisrael Chai, we are not asking for permission to exist. We do and we will. 
Netzach Yisrael lo yishaker. Shabbat Shalom. A prayer for peace. Thank you.